You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. Welcome, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the final weeks of summer as we begin to draw ever near the September month and the beginning of many of our programs, our annual fund, and the close of summer. As we get closer to September, I just want to remind you that we have had a continuing theme of workshops that hopefully have helped you think about things a little differently, things like annual fund, creating your case for support, and developing your capital campaign. And that's what today's topic is about developing a diocesan capital campaign. And I've brought together three wonderful experts, Sean Trahan, a Senior Managing Director for Changing Our World, Tom Farrell, another Senior Managing Director for Changing Our World, and Anna Vallez, who is a Senior Director for Changing Our World. All of these consultants have a tremendous amount of campaign experience. They've worked many campaigns all across the country. And I think that if you are thinking about preparing for a major diocesan initiative, whether you are a pastor, a bishop, or a development director, I think you'll get something out of this episode. So without further ado, here is my conversation on diocesan capital campaigns. Well, welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here at the podcast. I'm, I'm joined here by uh, Tom Farrell, Anna Vallez, and Sean Trahan. Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Jim. Well, I've been in uh, Catholic fundraising now 35 years. I think I've had the opportunity to work in, oh, close to 100 dioceses over that period of time hmm. and joined Changing Our World in 2010. Changing Our World acquired my consulting company, Trinity Fundraising. So been with Changing Our World doing the same type of work in the faith-based sector of the firm with parishes, dioceses, and mm-hmm. other Catholic-type institutions. Wonderful. And you're a senior managing director, and you've worked a lot of diocesan campaigns, which is our topic today. Yes. Yeah. On yeah. a few. Been on a few. Been on a few. <laughs> yeah. Great. Anna? Hi, Jim. Um, I've been with Changing Our World since 2012, so about seven years. I've done fundraising for about 26 years, both diocesan and parish campaigns throughout the country, and just really happy to be here today. Wonderful. Thanks. And Sean, welcome. Yes, thank you. So I have actually been with Changing Our World since 2012 as well. I am currently a senior managing director and, like Tom, have led many Dawson campaigns across the country, most recently uh, the Diocese of Camden, Archdiocese of St. Louis, and the Diocese of Dallas. So I've also worked in other sectors such as healthcare and higher ed, but my passion is truly faith-based. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, welcome all of you. Today we're going to talk about diocesan campaigns, all the ins and outs, and uh, maybe some ways to think about getting ready for one. If a diocesan development director or a bishop or someone were listening to the podcast what do you think would be the first thing that they need to think about when they're starting the planning uh, phase for a major diocesan campaign? Their need. Um, identifying what the need is. Obviously having a level of interest uh, from the core leaders and really having a desire to address their needs across the diocese and, and make it more of a community effort as opposed to just centralized effort whereby it's ministry leaders or diocesan leaders who are most interested in it. Excellent. 
Anybody else? Yeah, Jim. Um, you know, I've seen dioceses go through extensive pastoral planning to help identify mm-hmm. needs, which, you know, eventually helps form a case for a diocesan campaign. Some even conduct synods to, you know, flush out what the needs are in the diocese. And it could be a variety of things from support for seminarians, uh, priest retirement, Catholic education, evangelization, or, you know, some of the case components that we see quite often in these diocesan-type campaigns, the big campaigns. Sure. I think also understanding the commitment, the extensive commitment, time and energy and effort that's going to be needed to do this early on is really important. If I'm a development director for a diocese, what should I be thinking about as far as getting ready for a, a major diocesan campaign? What, what are some of the steps just in preparation? One, staff, making sure you have internal resources to be able to uh, help implement the campaign plan. The second thing I think would be donors. Obviously, we have to have that core base to uh, raise those dollars needed to, to address those needs, as Tom has outlined. So those are the two primary things that come to mind. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, good solid data. Uh, Donors, like Sean mentioned, is very important and a good first step. You know, conducting good annual appeals too. You know, having a measure of success leading up to a major campaign is important. Builds trust among the people. I'd also say committed leadership, Mm -hmm. you know, in the parish community is really important as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Scrubbing your database, making sure it's as accurate as possible, maybe doing a little census of your parishes just to make sure that they're all updating the central Razor's Edge database, looking at the the kinds of notes that if you have a major gift program, that the Razor's Edge is as up to date as possible with recent visits and recent data on those who are going to be your top prospects, I think would be important. All of that stuff, I think, feeds into a successful feasibility study and planning phase. So talking about a feasibility study, um, first, what goes into a feasibility study as opposed to a a smaller parish for a single parish? What would be the difference in in your estimation? What what would happen during that phase? Well, the primary primary difference is really the number of individuals you're trying to interview. I mean, that can, can range significantly. But in terms of the overall structure of the study, obviously, you have the need that you're testing. And that remains across the board. Significant difference, again, really geography, the time in terms of being able to implement the study, the timeline. You know, you're looking at anywhere from three to six months or even longer based on the current assignment that I have. But in parishes, you know, you're looking at six, eight weeks or so. So really the the, the biggest difference is time, just making sure that you have the right people that's going to be key key stakeholders, you know, that's participating in the study. It's the average number of <laughs> interviews or focus groups you might do with a diocesan campaign. I'm sure it'd be much more significant. Obviously, it takes a longer period of time. Sure. So on a Dawson-wide campaign, I mean, you can conduct 250-plus interviews mm-hmm. easily on a parish campaign, you know, 40, 50 interviews sure. or so. Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, two sides to the interviews. There's the internal interviews Mm -hmm. with diocesan uh, people, the hierarchy heads of departments, particularly those that might be impacted by a capital campaign in the Catholic school's office or the office of evangelization. And then there's the external interviews where we really try to talk to all the pastors. You know, they Mm -hmm. play an active role in the the parish phase of a diocesan campaign. And I think they like the fact that, you know, they're being treated personally and we go see them and sit down and listen to them 
and then key laity who have been supportive of the bishop, friends mm-hmm. of the diocese, large contributors to past campaigns and the annual appeal. So all that goes into the 250 or so interviews that Sean mentioned, you know, could take place in something significant like this. Excellent, excellent. So going back to the data, Jim, if I can interrupt, sure. um, you talked about the importance of having that clean data, scrubbing mm-hmm. the data. And oftentimes, as you guys know, going into these studies is, and then moving directly into a campaign, that is one of our biggest stumbling blocks mm-hmm. because most often clients don't prepare properly, not because they don't know, but oftentimes it's the lack of time that they have to allocate to that. Of course, you know, everyone's strapped for resources and just manpower. And so they feel like what they have will suffice. And I just think as Changing Our World go into conducting these studies, I think we have to do a better job at preparing the clients in this space in terms of scrubbing their data during the study process, which will better position them as well as us to move forward expeditiously with the campaign plan. One of the components of any diocesan campaign is usually the diocesan portion of the case for support and then the parish case for support. What goes into preparing a successful diocesan case for support? Keeping in mind, of course, that in a lot of cases, parishioners may not be aware of the larger diocesan needs. So there's always an education process with that. But how do you put together an airtight or a really compelling diocesan case for support that reaches into the pews that people really, really can, can latch onto and, and get excited about? Well, I think one of the things Tom mentioned was looking at the various ministries. You mentioned the online survey focus groups as well, I think, um, allows us to really gather the information needed to build a strong and compelling case. Current assignment, we are actually working with all of the ministry heads to help them identify what their areas of priorities are. And then, of course, meeting met with several key stakeholders as well to help identify some of the larger needs. So, I mean, those are just some of the ways in which we've worked to glean that information. I think interviews that we do with priests that work in the diocese and are also pastors are important. They help shape the case. You know, we're responsible for coming up with that first draft. And then it kind of gets scrubbed several times by the internal interviews, the external interviews, and what we share with the laities to get a reaction, see what resonates if we have to shift things around or even take some things out of the mm-hmm. case that people are unsupportive of from the get-go. Like Sean said, you know, six, eight-month process, we usually try and feel we're going to roll out with something that's going to get a good reaction from the donors. Mm-hmm. I know in some of our campaigns we've had, as, as you said, Sean, you want to make sure that whether it's a foundation or a diocesan development office, they're, they're well-staffed. And in some cases, they've actually they've added staff for the campaign that we bring in our consultants, and sometimes they have foundation or diocesan staff. Mm-hmm. How does that dynamic work when it comes to a campaign? And what are the opportunities for a development office to kind of expand and grow their services because they bring on additional staff? Yeah, well, I certainly think it's an opportunity for them to grow and also in the area of major gifts as we move into capital campaigns. And major gifts is an area where many dioceses lack, but want to build a strong team that can help, you know, evolve their fundraising efforts. I think foundations are establishing that model. And I think those that we've worked with are doing a phenomenal job in that area. But I think, you know, of course, we we have many, our development offices have many administrative gift processing team members. But as it relates to plan giving and major gifts, that's an area that they lack. But I've seen on most recent campaigns where they're now starting to bring those people on, even in some of our um, most recent campaigns, we are having blended staff, whereby they're hiring people to partner with us to serve as campaign directors and to move them into that major gift officer role. So that's one of the areas that I'm seeing where they are 
benefiting from capital campaigns and being able to grow their staff that will help them evolve their, their overall fundraising efforts. Excellent. Yeah, we're starting to see, I think, more and more of that on capital campaigns. It's certainly a good way for new people in the development office or the foundation office to learn about their diocese and learn about fundraising in general. And uh, then after the campaign is over, they fall into other roles and responsibilities, like Sean was saying, with planned gifts and major gifts or just uh, stewardship or work on the annual fund, continue on in those capacities. And as we said previously, I mean, I think Sean mentioned that they haven't even touched on major gifts, a lot of these um, dioceses. So when you're working with them, they're realizing just how much potential is in that category, you know, of major gifts and uh, donors that are out there that haven't even been asked. So um, you're actually growing that as well. Somebody brought up the annual appeal earlier. I think it was you, Tom. What's the correlation between if a diocese has a successful annual appeal that may be growing over the course of three to five years to a success in a major campaign? Is that an early indicator that there may be good support or, or is there any kind of a connection there? gives us a sense of uh, how Catholics support their diocese. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of annual appeals will have an advanced phase and then a general phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, gives us an indication of what participation might be in a capital campaign, what we can expect down the road. And then looking at the results of the appeal, you know, we can apply certain factors in determining the capital campaign goal. Are we going to raise eight times the annual mm-hmm. or ten times? You know, a lot of those things hold true. Mm-hmm. How about the bishop's role? So he plays the leader of the diocese and certainly the leader of this, of this campaign. What would you say is the role of the bishop and how can he be successful in a campaign? One, to serve as an advocate, to be the, the um, face of the campaign. I think that's number one. And then also take ownership of soliciting select donors, those who have uh-huh. capa- perceived capacity to consider significant gifts. Obviously, partnering with the pastors, giving them um, you know, words of encouragement and then, of course, the pastor seeing that he is completely behind the campaign and, and serving as the face of the campaign. And I think oftentimes the pastors will follow. Yeah, and setting expectations early on as well. You know, the bishop has got to set that pace and take ownership, like Sean said, and empowering his pastors to do the same. And I think even in, in, in regional meetings, you know, uh, whether it's not just the, the major gift portion, but certainly in whatever way he can lend his support to the volunteers, those who are the campaign leadership committees at the local parishes, they need to feel empowered by the bishop from the very top so that they go back to their parish and they feel like they're a part of something larger. So how about implementing a diocesan campaign? When you begin uh, the process yourselves as consultants and you enter a new diocese, what is most important to you? Relationships. Yeah. Building um, trust with the client. Once they feel that you, you bring the level of expertise and that they can trust you, I think things start to flow. Until then, you have nothing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's a give and take on, on both sides. And just building that relationship, Anna, in my opinion, is one of the best uh, relationship builders we have in, in CW. Thanks, Sean. What other signs? We talked about annual appeal. What other road signs would you say would uh, lead to a successful campaign? Well, I mean, get, getting back to the bishop, yeah. if the bishop is out front, mm-hmm. um, you know, is participating in the campaign, talking to donors, trying to raise money. I think the pastors see that, and hopefully the expectation is that they would follow, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming to diocesan campaign meetings, even some of the smaller ones, deanery meetings, mm-hmm. or when we 
have a block of parishes that are going to kick off, a group of parishes that are going to run campaigns. We usually start that with a special event where the bishop would speak, you know, participating in that. So if the bishop is out front and leading the way, it sends a message to the pastors that he's in, you know, with both feet. Awesome. You know, when we conduct a feasibility study for a campaign, there's typically some kind of a split, right, with the parish. What's your view? I've heard 50-50, parish diocese. I've heard 80-20, you know, parish diocese. What are your thoughts? What's the current thinking around the split with the diocese? Or do you, or do you gauge that based on the results of the feasibility study? Well, obviously, that's, that's one question uh, yeah. that we pose during the feasibility study. Uh, I mean, I've seen it from... 80-20 to 90-10 to 50-50. <laughs> I mean, I've seen the whole mm-hmm. gambit. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely, I think every Dawson campaign should have a share. I remember working on one campaign where there was no share. Mm. Was it successful? Yes. Uh, was it a hard sell? Uh, a little bit more difficult than what we would normally experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the archbishop was very well respected, and the people rallied around and, and supported the initiative. But I definitely think, you know, having a parish share sets the tone for it's a community effort. And um, every, you know, entity has a need. And it's not just the bishop's vision. Um, right. Everyone sort of benefits from the, the effort. So It seems the larger the parish share, overall, more money seems to be raised. Mm-hmm. I think the reason for that is is people are closer to their parish than they are to the diocese, but it all depends on the needs, too, of the diocese. Uh, We're working in the Diocese of Albany right now, and it's a 70-30 split, 70% going to the parishes, and that was formulated after the planning study that we did there, and a commitment on the fact by the bishop who realized there are greater needs in the parishes than actually, you know, maybe for the diocese. Well, a diocese has significant needs. His intention was to help his pastors, and and they had the, the discretion to determine how they wanted to spend the money for their 70%, whether it was capital needs, bricks and mortar, or programs and ministries that they, mm-hmm. they wanted to fund or enhance. Could they also, Tom, give it to a parish that is uh, in need? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can't. That's great. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, you know, if I'm a bishop or if I'm a de- director of development, how do I get my parishes ready for a campaign? How do, I, how do I get my pastors ready? What's important at the local level when trying to implement a campaign? Well, obviously, going back to the need, helping him identify core leadership, those who he can trust, uh, those who he often depend on, and obviously identifying what that donor base is. So you need, you know, your prospects, you need a, a strong case, and you need leadership. Those are the three components that sets the stage for a successful campaign. So uh, when we look at the parish leadership, as you mentioned, Sean, uh, typically we would put together a campaign leadership committee you know, that's going to help uh, our pastor. What, what's the role of the campaign leadership committee at a parish for a major campaign like this? Well, uh, you know, to support the pastor, uh, there'll be some parishioners in the parish that will join the pastor on individual visits that are made. They'll be asked to speak from the pulpit periodically about the campaign. They'll be asked to speak at events, receptions that we host for donors, and just be a good advocate for for their parish to be out front, similar to what the bishop would be on the diocesan level. Same thing for the pastor, too. It's all all the same. It all represents good leadership and involvement, commitment of time, and a willingness to, you know, see the program through, the campaign through. And I think as long as the bishop is recruiting strong leaders and um, the message is strong, 
I think recruiting leadership at the parish level is crucial, but, but having ownership for those committee members to have ownership in the campaign, the overall campaign, and then their willingness to share their energy and enthusiasm for that is so important. And as a, you know, typically a parish would have its own in the parish local case for support, as well as the diocesan case for support, perhaps getting their buy-in, their input on the development of that case for support so they can be ambassadors for the parish as yeah, well. Good point. Yeah. You know, Jim, uh, questions that come from the parish relate more to the diocesan case mm. than their own case. Mm. Sometimes the parish case is a, a, a lot simpler than the diocesan case. Mm -hmm. But the Catholics that are active in their parish understand that there's an annual appeal mm -hmm. for the diocese, that there's an assessment, that there's second collections. And these are some of the questions that they ask about in justifying more money going to the diocese. So mm -hmm. that's where the challenge is in a lot of these campaigns right. is standing up and supporting that diocesan case and, and helping the bishop do it and, and getting the pastor behind it too. Because mm -hmm. it, it, when it comes from them, it makes the job of raising money that much easier. Absolutely. How would you describe the, the role of the pastor in the campaign? I would say much like the bishop yeah. in terms of being the face of the campaign, uh, empowering leadership, um, obviously taking ownership and the willingness to solicit families, not just at the, the, the major level, but also partnering with volunteers who may struggle with solicitations, want to be involved, but may not feel as confident. And I think having the pastor serve in the capacity when he can, uh, those volunteers, I certainly think, builds that great relationship and better positions the campaign for our success. Mm. Yeah, I think getting the right people around the pastor is important, gives mm -hmm. the pastor some confidence, sense that he's being supported, that this is not just for him, it's for everybody else in the parish. I think those things are key. How important is, um, I'm thinking at the diocesan level again, you know, you, you have all these individual parishes and they're on different tracks, usually different blocks. How important is flexibility, you know, at the diocesan level? You know, you're trying to manage all these little individual campaigns. Some may be moving faster than others. Some may be developing their local cases for support. Sometimes you even get more buy-in from a local pastor than you would from another local pastor. It never happened, I know, but how do you manage those different kinds of flows from the diocesan level? How important is flexibility? It's very important. You know, when I first started conducting these campaigns, it was much simpler hmm. then than it is today. I remember starting a block and, you know, my five, six parishes all ended within, you know, days of each other, literally. Today, I think we have to approach it just like we approach major gifts. Uh, we, we often say every solicitation uh, is a campaign in itself. And I think that's how we have to approach these parish campaigns. Even though they're within the same block, every parish has its challenges, whether it's recruiting leadership, finalizing the case, parish calendar, whatever it may be, data. And so while we want all of them to start at the same time, it may not necessarily be possible, as we all know. I mean, I think we as directors have to be prepared to give every parish our undivided attention, whether it's a certain day or whether it's certain hours during the day. And I think having that on-site presence allows us to do that. And so blocking out time to make that parish feel that they are the only parish that we're working with at that time and really just guiding them. I mean, it's not a cookie cutter approach. And so every parish campaign has to almost has it have its own timeline, a modified timeline from the, the block timeline and just tailoring uh, all the materials. 
I think understanding a parish's culture as well, mm-hmm. knowing um, how the culture of the pastor, not just the parish community, but um, really understanding where they're coming from in terms of being a part of a, a larger campaign and then working with their own parish communities. I think as directors, we have to understand those elements in order for us to do our job and to help them, empower them to do theirs. I think the flexibility we're talking about is developed as a result of the the study when we go talk to the pastors and we sit down and we find out that that new pastor has only been there one month. Maybe I'm not ready to go right away. Mm -hmm. These diocesan campaigns are run in groups, blocks of parishes Mm -hmm. and take two and three years. So, Father, maybe you should be in the last round of church Mm -hmm. campaigns so you have an opportunity to get to know your people and they get to know you. Or we've had circumstances where we go to the parish and their school recently closed and Mm -hmm. they just want some time to heal as a result of that. In the Archdiocese of Hartford, there's been closings of parishes where we're working. They went through an extensive pastoral plan. So some of the parishes, uh, they're actually selling buildings. You know, they'll tell you, well, we need to wait a little bit here that the, you know, the consolidation of our churches into one parish has been a challenge and we're all getting used to one another. So uh, that's, that's kind of what goes into this flexibility thing to make sure that when they do raise money, uh, everyone's kind of in a, in a good place, in a good mood, and they believe in the project and it's going to help that particular parish. Mm-hmm. What would you say uh, are some of the critical do's and don'ts of a capital campaign? You know, what, what are the things that you've seen, oh, we want to shy away from this, or some of the, some of the challenges that you may have encountered? I would say uh, not allowing the parish to significantly alter the, the fundraising process. We're yeah, not going right. to make personal visits. We're not going to do receptions. We want to do it by direct mail. We're going to do an in-pew. Mm-hmm. Not having raised enough money when we get into the subsequent phases where we, you, know, you could lose momentum. Mm-hmm. So yeah, altering the plan and the process significantly from what we know works over years and years tends to have an impact on the results of you know, an individual parish campaign. Mm-hmm. I think which leads back to what Sean was saying about the element of trust. You know, if, if they really trust what you're doing, trust your expertise, then I'd like to think that that won't happen. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, altering the plan, the need statement, that sort of thing. Yes. You know, one just... of the, the biggest things pastors have a challenge with, not so much in a parish campaign, but also in wide campaign, recruiting um, leadership. Who do I go to? I, I've only been, as Tom said, I've only been at this parish for two months or a year. I don't mm-hmm. really know who all the, the, the key players are. In some cases, I've been here for 15 years, but, you know, I don't look at the data. I don't know who's most generous. Yeah, I know some names, but mm, I have eight masses. I have uh, 5,000 families. I don't know who to recruit. And so one of the things we'd often do is obviously go back to the uh, study results and see if there were any families identified mm-hmm. as their out of top, top prospects or potential leadership that are registered at that parish. And then another area that we consider, obviously, is asking Father, you know, what I often say is if there was something that happened in this parish, whether it's good or bad, mm-hmm. who would you pick up the phone and call? Not your associate pastor if you have one, mm-hmm. um, but your two or three parishioners or families that you would call. Who would those individuals be? And then you'd start to think, and of course we know every pastor has one or two families sure. that they call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I try to start to get him to think in that way. And then if we can convene those people and obviously from there, grow the committee. But those are the people, if he's calling them, he has trust, he has faith in those families. And I think that's a 
good starting point. So for me, that's one of the, the, the biggest do's, you know, early on in, in the campaign process. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Jim, one of the things you can rely on, too, is in a lot of these parishes, they have business managers or pastoral associates, mm-hmm. oftentimes have been there longer than the pastor, mm-hmm. and they serve as a pretty good resource. Uh, even, you know, members of the parish staff that have good knowledge, they can be tapped into to help the pastor begin to identify the type of leadership that's necessary. I think another thing that's real important is not to assume that the pastors are good leaders, great leaders, and that they know how to solicit and that they know how to do a campaign. I think as directors, I think our our role can be to help them learn to be great leaders, you know, to educate them in a very gentle way sometimes. So I, I think not to make assumptions about a particular pastor or committee leader, uh, just to know our role and to, to know that we can educate and empower and, and, and really help them to become better leaders, great leaders. And that just goes back to trying that we don't have a cookie cutter approach, that exactly. we have to meet them where they're at. Exactly. Um, and some are going to be dive right into this very quickly and, and be very successful. And others are going to just take a little bit more time, right. you know, and a little bit more handholding through the process. Got a lot of experience in this room. Uh, how have you guys, Sean, you kind of touched on it earlier. How have you seen diocesan campaigns kind of evolve or change over the last, you know, several years uh, from maybe when you began? Um, you know, some of it has to do with, uh, you know, the way society has changed. Certainly more homes than not now have two professionals in the household. So volunteerism is a, is a real challenge. Uh, what are some of the ways in which you've seen these campaigns evolve? I can think of a couple of things just right off. Obviously, volunteer leadership is becoming increasingly challenging. Back then, you know, volunteers were very plentiful now with all the activities, both spouses working, um, people spending more time traveling professionally. I think it's, um, you know, those are some of the the reasons why uh, volunteer leadership is down. Um, I also think data. I don't know about you, Tom, but I don't remember, ever remember data being as difficult as it is today. I would agree. Um, I remember having a a parish list, creating the letters, and then off we went. Um, But now, uh, you know, it's becoming a little bit more um, challenging to even be able to extract the data from the parishes. And I'm not sure if it's partly because of the many databases. Obviously, we know it's not uh, centralized. It wasn't centralized back then. Many dioceses is still not centralized. So mm-hmm. I don't have an answer as to, as to why it's becoming um, or has become increasingly difficult, but that's an, another area. Those are the two things that come to mind. Obviously, the timelines are um, longer now. Yeah. Um, it's taking a little longer to close gifts than it did many years ago. I think that may have something to do with both spouses now taking an active role in the decision making mm-hmm. um, as opposed to back then. And then also, I think um, now with moving less from face to face solicitations because of the busyness of our society and moving in other uh, solicitation approaches, you know, is impacting the turnaround time. So, anyway, those are the, the three areas that come to mind for me. I have just one more to add to that, and that's the time commitment that the pastor Mm -hmm. can put into the campaign. I know growing up as a kid in my parish, there were four or five priests there. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, now you, you know, you go to a parish, there's one, one member of the clergy and he's the be all end all of everything. Everyone goes to him. He's pulled in a million different directions. He's got administrative responsibilities throughout the week. He works on the weekend saying mass. 
so, you know, sometimes getting that time commitment from the pastor uh, is a bit of a challenge. We try to establish, you know, standing meetings, trying to get good lay leadership around him, you know, to support. And then as well as in the, in the office, the parish office, the staff, you know, participating as much as possible. So that is sometimes a, sometimes a challenge and creates delays for what we're attempting to do. There's a funeral that comes up or, you know, some other uh, important thing that the pastor wants to address. It might be a, more important than the campaign. And so, you know, we try to be flexible and sensitive to those sort of things, work around it. So. And I'd like to agree with Tom and Sean, but, and, and you've touched on something. I think the shortage of priests, shortage of staff, and then also priorities for individual parishes may not necessarily be data. You know, it, it could be so different. The focus of a parish community could be on something totally different than data, you know, and making sure that the, we all know that data is so very important for so many reasons. But I think we've encountered parishes that just don't feel that it's important. So by the time we get to that parish and ask for data, they uh, have no idea what we're talking about, what we're asking about. Or they feel that their data is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Well, yeah. We, we get, you know, a lot of times we're, uh, we're merging a lot of data. The yes. parish will tell us the, the, the best data is at the diocese with the annual appeal. Right. No, the best data is at the envelope company. No, we have the best data. <laughs> Where's the data? But, right. the, but the person who extracting the data is only here on Thursday and Friday. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or um, from 8 to 12. Yeah, from 8 yeah. to 12. Or the data, 5,000 registered parishioners. And by the way, two weeks later, they'll tell you, I think 40% have passed away, you know, right, so yeah. the data's not really... Yeah, it's no fun to mail the dead people. to yeah. say the yeah. least, yes. <laughs> yeah, it never goes well. <laughs> never goes well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the reality, switching gears a little bit here, the reality today of, uh, of, of the abuse scandal that, mm-hmm. you know, dioceses are, are wrestling with, and uh, certainly in philanthropy, Catholic philanthropy, it is, it is an, an issue for us. How have you seen, in your own experiences, dioceses uh, successfully you know, deal with that issue? And, and what impact is that issue having on our campaigns today? Well, I can speak firsthand in, on my most recent campaign in the Diocese of Camden, whereby the list of clergy, the list was released, and it was actually in the midst of the campaign. And uh, the diocese partnered with a PR firm, and initially uh, the guidance was to read a letter. The bishop, along with the PR firm, write a letter, and every pastor would be responsible for reading this letter uh, at all masses on one giving, a given weekend. And uh, later the PR firm came back and said, well, you know, we're not sure that's the best recommendation. We should probably consider a video. And they worked with the communications uh, office and created a video. And I have to tell you, it was very well received by pastors, parishioners, and it was shown at all masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it was during the midst of the campaign. And did we receive some cancellations of pledges? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, the number probably ranged anywhere from 10 to 20 uh, over the, the last um, six months. Modest contributions, nothing significant to impact uh, the overall results of the campaign. But I think people felt that the bishop, because they were able to see him and see how sincere uh, he was, people really uh, appreciated him taking the time to address this matter. 
you know, you didn't hear any complaints about, oh, we didn't have a homily this weekend because they felt that took center stage and should have taken center stage. At the end of the day, our numbers in Camden, we don't feel not just from a consultant standpoint, but even Austin leadership agree that they didn't feel as though the uh, scandal really impacted the campaign negatively. I'm sure it's going to be different in every campaign, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think overall with the bishop really taking the center stage and addressing the need and really not running from it made a difference. Yeah, I'd like to agree with Sean. I think if they're able to meet it head on in a timely manner, I think that's crucial to dealing with this so that it doesn't impact it as much as it would have had they not brought it forward. Yeah, Jim, in some of the dioceses I'm involved with right now, the bishop and the church hierarchy was very transparent about the circumstances and the environment. But we've been in this state for about 20 years Mm -hmm. now, so there's been some ups and downs along the way. But we're still raising millions of dollars in these dioceses. And I think there's a core group of people that they understand, and it's terrible what happened, but you just can't shake their faith. And they focus on the good works of the church, what the church does for mm-hmm. for education, for charities, for the poor, for the sick, uh, that those things are also still have to continue and need, and need support. You know, more and more dioceses are, uh, are beginning an independent Catholic foundation, you know, for philanthropy. Uh, certainly, I would think that that has an impact on, on giving in a diocese, hopefully in a positive way. Mm-hmm. What would be your recommendation, you know, to, to a diocese in regard to you having a Catholic foundation or, you know, having philanthropy come out of that, that one central location? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I definitely think it's something that we'll start to see more and more of over the next several years. I think having an independent foundation, especially in the current climate, I think will garner greater support for a Dawson-wide campaign, but it also allows families to have another um, avenue to contribute to, to address Dawson-wide needs before, even beyond, after the, the life of the active phase of the campaign. So, I'm seeing, from my experiences, a a real benefit to that. It also helps um, change the culture of giving uh, in the diocese. I think it assures donors that their money is protected, that it's Mm -hmm. going to be used for the intended purposes as promised, which they have to do. So there's accountability. There's an annual report Mm -hmm. from a foundation that has to be, you know, distributed to the people in the diocese. It brings laity into the mix as a board of directors overseeing, so it doesn't put all the pressure on the clergy to you know, manage the funds that come into it. Like I said earlier, with the foundation, the money has to be used for what people are being told it's being used for, and they're, and they're being watched. You know, I've, I've seen two different models in dioceses where, in some cases, the foundation is basically a repository for planned gifts, and, and the main focus is, is endowments and, and uh, planned giving. And then the rest of the philanthropy, uh, the Bishop's Annual Appeal, all run out of the diocesan office. And then there are uh, some dioceses who have just said, uh, I'm thinking Philadelphia, Orlando, uh, Green Bay, and many others, I'm sure, where all of the philanthropy comes, you know, in and out of the one foundation. Do you guys have a view on that? You know, I've worked in both. I've worked Mm -hmm. in the Diocese of Orlando, and I've also worked like in Dallas, where it's completely independent. Mm -hmm. I think there are benefits to both. However, um, when it's not independent, it doesn't protect those funds uh, from any issues or from the current climate. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think there's a, you know, an obvious benefit to having an independent. But I also see the other side as well. When all fundraising 
activities is generated from that um, that foundation. Mm-hmm. Well, just some closing thoughts. Uh, we'll just kind of go around the horn here uh, on diocesan campaigns. Uh, uh, any uh, words of wisdom you'd like to leave us with, Tom? You want to go first? Yeah, sure. There's there right now. There's a lot of activity across the country in dioceses. Uh, I think we're working in somewhere between six to eight, doing you know various types of projects, capital campaigns, offertory programs, audits and assessments of development operations. So there is a market right now, and it is pretty busy. And it's a good time. Obviously, the economy is very good. Now is a good time to be talking to people about making a gift to the church, to the Catholic Church. So, I, you know, I just see this trend now continuing moving forward in the next few years. Kind of go in cycles. You know, there's sure. a lot of activity and then it gets quiet and there's yeah. a lot of activity. Yeah. That's what I've seen in the time I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. So it gets kind of contagious. You know? Yeah, yeah. If that diocese can do it, we can do it. <laughs> well, also sometimes things uh, are deferred when we're in bad times. We just, now right. is not a good time for a campaign. So exactly. those things get kicked down the road and now, wow, we really need a diocesan campaign. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And what do we say? It's never a good time to conduct a campaign, That's right. right. <laughs> there are more reasons not to. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> How about you, Anna? I think that as long as you um, are messaging, as long as folks are really understanding what it means, stewardship, and what it means to be a good steward of faith, I think you're going to see more and more parishes, dioceses growing. And I think, Tom's right, I think one diocese seeing another succeed, you know, with a, a diocesan campaign will kind of tempt them and get them going and thinking that maybe we can do it too. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, well, there's definitely a certain level of need that continues to, to mm-hmm. grow across the country, whether it's capital, whether it's endowment. Mm-hmm. And I agree with Anna and Tom. When bishops and archbishops and pastors see that, neighboring parishes or neighboring dioceses or Irish dioceses or other Catholic entities are conducting campaigns and, and did it uh, successfully, they begin to identify what their needs are and say, if they can do it, we can do it too. And that's the kind of bishop or leader you want when they feel that they can too be successful in an initiative. So um, as Tom indicated, we're continuing to see more and more of these nationwide I don't know how many Tom has been involved in, but I've lost track of the number that I've been involved in over the years. Right behind. Intentionally. Yeah. (laughs) I'm right behind you, Sean. (laughs) So am I. But as I stated in my opening remarks, um, you know, faith-based, it's my passion. Sure. And I know it's, you know, a huge passion for changing our world as well. So glad to be part of it. And, and, you know, I was thinking as Sean was speaking that I think it's, parishes will see that it's not just about us working to help them achieve a goal, but that we're leaving them in a better place. I think we're leaving them um, with better offertory. You know, we, we talked about this earlier, that uh, we're not seeing that offertory is affected by campaigns. We're actually seeing them grow. So I think if we can leave folks with the idea that we came and got a job done, but we actually help their parish community grow as a parish, I think we're doing our job. So. Well, excellent. I just want to thank all of you for being a part of today's discussion. Uh, it was excellent. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you, Jim. Thank you. I want to thank Tom Farrell, John Trahan, and Anna Vaez for the great discussion today. If you have any questions about any of the topics that we discussed on our show, 
please shoot me an email at jim at advancingourchurch.com. On next week's episode, we will continue the discussion around diocesan capital campaigns through a discussion with one of Changing Our World's wonderful clients, the Diocese of Camden in New Jersey, and we'll be talking with Marianne Gilbride, the Development Director, as well as the Vicar General, Father Robert Hughes. Sean Trahan will also be joining me for this conversation. Sean ran the major diocesan campaign for the Diocese of Camden. They raised over $40 million. I hope you'll join us for a continuation of this conversation around diocesan capital campaigns. That's our show this week. Special thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for helping to produce our show. If you'd like more information about our podcast, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Well, one certain way that you can show appreciation for our show is to leave us a rating on iTunes or continue to like, repost, and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you have a great week, everybody. Take care and God bless you and your families.